Well, he killed them all but one boy, Arthur Lawson. On Christmas Day, 1929, Charlie Lawson murdered six of his kids, his wife, and then himself. There was one lone survivor, his 16-year-old son, Arthur. I'm Chad Tucker. This is Deadly Secrets, The Lawson Family Murder, Episode 2, Those Left Behind. Well, I'll tell you what I, I really know of now. That's the voice of Claude Lawson. He was just a kid when he and his dad discovered the murder scene that Christmas day. Killed six children and his wife. Yeah. Sure did. Claude Lawson, mm-hmm. with his father, they came to say Merry Christmas and could see there was a massacre happening. They found in the house and a nearby tobacco barn the bodies of his wife and six kids. But they didn't find the oldest son, Arthur, who had gone to the store when the killings happened. But he wasn't the only one missing. For many hours, nobody could find Charlie. Uh, it got dusk. They had a fire, a big bonfire going out in front of the home. That's Trudy J. Smith the author of two books on the Lawson family murder. There's just so much that happened, you know, during that time. And you get different stories from different people. But it's just pretty amazing, um, everything that went on. As I wrote in the books, I don't think it was quite as easy to kill himself as it was to do in his family because it was hours and hours and people were afraid. They didn't know where he was, whether he was also murdered, whether he was the murderer, whether the murderer was somebody else and they were looking around. Uh, they were a little bit scared to venture out, but about 5 p.m. they uh, heard a gunshot off sort of in the distance out behind where the, uh, there was a thicket of pine trees out behind where the uh, tobacco barn was. So some of them decided to take off and go see what it was, and they found him. He had committed suicide. For most people, their story ends at their grave. But for the Lawson family, there were chapters still to be written. What happened after their deaths would be talked about for generations. The funeral was attended by thousands. Not long after, the cabin and crime scene began to attract the curious. Marion Lawson decides to have the house be a a tourist attraction. After crowds of people started showing up at the home, Charlie's brother started charging admission. It became, you know, a big tourist trap for about five years. Aaron Green is a local history buff and collects Lawson family memorabilia. People just went there and they kept coming and they just ate it up, you know, so, such an odd event and then such an odd response. The money was to go and help the lone survivor of the tragedy keep the family farm. Yeah, I, I guess Marion, it was Charlie's brother, just kind of saw an opportunity to help Arthur, you know, make ends meet. And I guess looking back, you can't really blame him. I mean, he got a lot of, you know, fight from his family, but, you know, doing what he had to do back then. Visitors could buy souvenir pamphlets for a quarter. 
It's just basically, it's a poem that was written and it covers the story, you know, kind of how the events went down and there's a picture of the graves on the back there. They even offered souvenir photographs of the crime scene. The house and property was left just the way it was when the murders took place. Even the raisin cake Marie, the oldest daughter, had made for Christmas was still on the table. I think he just went straight through. Keith Hyatt's grandparents took the tour. And it, when you got to the kitchen, you could see the cake on the table. The raisin cake that the girl had made at Christmas. People all over the area paid 25 cents to see where their murders happened. Those stories were passed down through families like Kurt Suffins. After the book came out, the, the, the first one, the White Christmas, Bloody Christmas, I think I showed it to my Aunt Ruth, who was born in 1920, mom's sister. And she said, oh yeah, me and mom and daddy went up there when they were charging admission to go in there. She said, she remembered that raisin cake. And she hadn't even seen the book, but she recalled that being a raisin cake sitting in the kitchen. And people started stealing the raisins off of the cake for souvenirs, so they uh, put it under a case, covered it up so they couldn't get their hands on it. Sure, I guess it was just a morbid curiosity mm. to attract that place. And people were, you know, souvenir hunting then. They were pulling raisins off a cake and taking parts of the cabin, you know, so they had to wrap, you know, chicken wire around it. it was The tragedy inspired a young North Carolina singer-songwriter named Walter Kidd Smith. I assume he wrote it because he thought it was the kind of thing that people would be interested in hearing on a record. Uh, my name is Kenny Rohr. I'm a great fan of old-time music. I've done radio shows of bluegrass and old-time music off and on since 1981. I was a history teacher, but I'm uh, in love with the history of the music. I love the history of anything, but especially the history of old-time traditional music from the Piedmont of North Carolina. The murder was at Christmas of 29, and he recorded the song in March. Probably hoping to capitalize on the notorious event. I think he was interested in, you know, event ballads and I mean, the biggest selling country music record of the pre-World War II period was the record of the 097, which happened here in Danville. And, and murder ballads, you know, the boy meets girl, boy murders girl kind of song, you know, lots of people recording those. For the recording, Smith would enlist the help of some musical friends from the area. Poser on fiddle, Buster Carter on banjo, Louis McDaniel on guitar, and then uh, Kid Smith was the vocalist. The kid didn't play anything. He was a singer. He was a very fine singer. They call themselves the Carolina Buddies. In fact, they played a show at, at uh, Sandy Ridge High School uh, as a fundraiser. Uh, they called themselves North Carolina Ramblers at that point. And Posey and Buster Carter and Lewis McDaniel and Kid Smith, there was an article about it in the Danbury newspaper in 1930 that the North Carolina Ramblers had played and they were on their way to New York to make records. And so I guess he auditioned that song maybe at the, at the high school. I, I knew Lewis McDaniel, he played the guitar on the record. I knew him. And you played with him some? Oh yeah, I used to go up to his house a lot. That's Keith Hyatt again. Kid Smith had written the song and uh, they contacted the Columbia people in New York and uh, they, when they heard the song or read it, read the lyrics, they said they would be glad to record it if they'd bring three more songs so they'd have enough to fill two records. They didn't want to just bring them up out for one record, you know. 
Yeah, I went to visit Kid back in 1974. He was living in Fredericksburg, Virginia then. So I hunted him up. I found out, I don't know who I actually got the information from that led me to him. And I called him, asked him, could I come down and talk to him? And my wife and I drove down there. And uh, he lived in a trailer park uh, then in a mobile home uh, with his wife. And uh, he was a really terrific storyteller and a wonderful singer and songwriter. And he had written uh, the Murder of the Lawson Family song. He wrote a song called Otto Wood the Bandit, which he also recorded. He recorded some songs with his daughters in the late 30s and this kind of thing. And he was talking about how when they went to New York to record that, he said uh, they uh, drove up there. And he said uh, when they got to New York, he said, I took newspaper clippings with me, and I'd, I'd written Columbia Records and told them, you know, I had a song I'd written about this murder that had taken place at home. But he said, I had to verify it with them, so I took newspaper clippings with me. And he said, when we were in New York, he said, we were eating in a little restaurant there, and he said they had a little band playing, and he said, Posey Roar, the fiddler, decided he wanted to get up and dance. And Posey had had very bad clubbed feet. He had one foot that was turned backwards and one that was turned in at about 60 degrees. But he had had surgery on them and straightened his feet. This was about 1923 or 24. And his feet were straight, but he still walked with a hop. He still wasn't quite right on his feet. And he said Posey decided he wanted to get up and dance. And he said so he got up and started trying to dance. And, of course, he was falling all over the place because he couldn't walk well. But so the people in the restaurant thought he was drunk and they called the police. So a kid said they hauled us all into court. Uh, me and Posey and Lewis and Buster. And so we all went into court and he said, I produced the letter to the judge to show him we were in New York to make records. And I showed him the newspaper clippings and this kind of business and showed him we, we weren't drunk. Posey just couldn't walk well in this kind of business. And he said, the, the judge said, well, I'll let you go, but you're going to have to play a tune for me. Play me a song. To show the, and I failed to ask Kid what the song was, uh, but he Lewis told me that he was so scared when they went to the studio to record. He said I was so intimidated as he as Kid as Lewis said I was so uh, scared. He said I couldn't hit the ground with my hat. He said I was so scared, and he said they had to bring a chair into the studio for me to sit in to play the guitar because I couldn't stand up and play. I was so scared. <laughs> And the song was a hit in the genre that would become country music. The Myrtle Loss Family was, a, uh, was one of Columbia Records' best-selling hillbilly records of 1930. Uh, sold over 8,000 copies. And by that time, most hillbilly records were selling in the 1,000 to 2,000 range. And for that one to sell well over 8,000, that was a really good seller. And Roar says if the country had not been in the Depression, it would have sold a whole lot more. Well, a record cost 75 cents then, and 75 cents would have been a day's wage for a lot of people. That, that, was, uh, that was expensive. You know, records were expensive. If you bought one, you better like it. <laughs> and my mother said that when she was a girl, my mother would have been um, 11 years old then, she said one Saturday the neighbors sent one of the kids down to their house and said, hey, we got that new Charlie Lawson record, so we've got that new record about the Lawson family. Said, y'all come up to the house and listen to it. The mother said, we all went up there and said, had a real nice Victrola, and said they put on the murder of the Lawson family, and said, we all sat there and listened to it. It was like an event, a neighborhood event. Everybody came to listen to that record. Roar interviewed Kid Smith about the song, and in doing so, 
uncovered what many believe is the reason Charlie Lawson killed his family. And when I went to see Kid Smith, Kid told me, he said, he said I was talking to a guy in Winston-Salem uh, long about the time they made the record, and he said, and it came to me straight, he said, Charlie Lawson killed his family because his da oldest daughter was pregnant and it drove him mad. It drove him crazy. As an added attraction to visitors touring the Lawson home and crime scene, the man who wrote and recorded the ballad would sometimes go there and perform live. Kids said they would hire them to come up there and play. In fact, I found an old, uh, a little newspaper clipping in the Leaksville News from 1930 where the Carolina Buddies would be playing at the Lawson family home on Sunday afternoon. And Kid said that uh, Charlie Lawson's brother hired him to come up there. This is the most interesting story he told about it. He said, we would play up there on Sunday afternoons. Uh, Charlie Lawson's brother charged people to go in the house. I think he charged them a quarter to go in the house, uh, to tour the house. And he said, we were playing there one Sunday and said it was a big crowd. And he said, this guy came running around the house with blood streaming down his arms, screaming, the haints are after me, the haints have stabbed me, the haints stabbed me. And he said, Kid Smith said, people took off in all directions, just terrified, running. When they saw the blood and the guy screaming, the haints stabbed me, the haints are after me, he said, everybody ran in all directions. And Kid, who was a real matter of fact, down to earth, you know, it came to me straight kind of guy, he said, I didn't believe the guy. And he said, I got up and went around the house to see what he was talking about, who might have stabbed him and this kind of, and he said, I looked up and he said, a window light was broken out, a window pane had been broken out. And he says, what the guy had done, he had broken a window pane out and reached through the window to steal something as a souvenir. Remember people kept stealing uh, uh, raisins off the cake, you know, they had that raisin right. cake that she'd been working on that, and people kept stealing the raisins as souvenirs. And he said the guy had reached through the window and when he pulled his arm back, he cut it on the jagged glass and he was trying to cover his tracks by claiming the ghost had stabbed him. <laughs> Kids, Ken said, I didn't believe him to start with. And he said, when I saw the broken window pane, he said, I knew what he had done. <laughs> but my grandparents went up there and they said the time they went, they had a phonograph sitting on the table right in front of the house and it was playing the record. So when they didn't have a live music, they had a record on a little Victrola, maybe a little wooden one. Is your record? It's mine. Oh, okay. Did you inherit it or did you find it? No, I found it somewhere. I got two copies of it. And there is nothing like listening to a record the way it was originally heard on an old wind-up Victrola. It's about a wind it up good of well, it's, it's pretty slick. I don't need two copies. The song about the murder of the Lawson family has played a major role in keeping the story going for 90 years. So it was the records that kept the ballads alive and, and gave them uh, an importance beyond you know what they might have had otherwise. And certainly the longevity is based on the recorded ballad. 
Hello there. How are you? The song was also popular among musicians who often played it when they got together. Keith Hyatt. Hey there. How are y'all doing? Gathered up a group of people to play it for us. Appreciate y'all. I'm Taylor Rohr on fiddle. I'm Doug Rohr on guitar. I'm Keith Hyatt on vocal. I'm Kirk Sutphin on banjo. Well, I heard some of my relatives used to sing it, you know. We'd be playing music around, uh, around the house or the back of barn or something, and I'd hear people sing it. It was on last Christmas evening, the snow was on the ground. Here is home in North Carolina, where his murder he was found. His name was Charlie Lawson, and he had a loving wife. Stokes County to do my student teaching in, in the winter of 1968, uh, I was very fascinated by that song and that story, and I went over to the old house where that murder had taken place, and it was late January, it was about sundown, it was cold and getting dark, and I walked around the house, kudzu had grown up over the house, and, uh, and it was very spooky, creepy walking around there thinking about what happened in that place.
cabin has since been torn down, you can still see the old foundation where it once stood. The timbers from inside were used to build a covered bridge that spans a peaceful babbling brook. A stark contrast to the horrific scene that took place here so many years ago. Okay, as you can see, we got the museum inner sign here, and we're gonna walk right down here, Chad, through the door into the museum. And I like the squeaky sounds of it. So. Coming up in our next episode. But I'll show you something that I think you're gonna find very interesting. We'll take you to a museum located in the old funeral home where the Lawson family were prepared for burial. And we have some people that won't even come down in this hallway. They, they get chills on their arms, and they, they, and they just don't go any farther. All this and more as our series, Deadly Secrets, The Lawson Family Murder, continues. If you want to see more of the story of the Lawson Family Murder, check out our website, myfox8.com. There you'll see interviews and images of the family and crime scene. If you like the podcast, give it a five-star rating. It'll help get the word out. Deadly Secrets, The Lawson Family Murder, co-written and narrated by yours truly, Chad Tucker. Produced, co-written, and edited by David Weatherly. Our executive producer is Kevin Daniels. Thank you.